We praise God this morning that we get to gather like this and be together as God's people, that we get to be with one another, and we get to be with one another before the face of God, before the Lord. We live always quorum Deo before the face of God, but today, on the Lord's Day, we get to gather like this before His face as a local church. What a blessing it is, and I pray that your heart is filled with that excitement as you are here, both horizontally and vertically as you are relating to God through how we relate to his people. So I'm thankful for the opportunity personally to be with all of you and uh, humbled by the opportunity to bring God's word to us this morning, to teach his word. And this is uh, just another aspect of our worship service. So all that we're doing this morning is worship, I've said this before, but sometimes we, we use singing as synonymous with worship. And we recognize, of course, that singing is one aspect of worship. It is part of what we do in our worship service. And uh, this is another part, instruction from God's Word. And so as we carry out this portion of worship today, we come to Exodus 40. So if you would turn with me there, Exodus 40. Verses 1 to 33. We have now come to the final chapter of this book. The second book of the Bible. We are in the very last chapter. Not quite the final sermon. We're not there quite yet. But we are in the final chapter. And Lord willing, we will finish Exodus next week with those final verses. Verses 34 to uh, 38, and you see those, chapter 40, verses 34 to 38, over there on that wall, those just glorious, climactic verses. Uh, That will be our last sermon in Exodus, Lord willing, next week. So not quite there, but we are on the very last stretch. Last week, we covered the construction of the tabernacle, all of the metals, yarns, fabrics, wood, oil, spices, and stones contributed by the Israelites, were put to good use in making the various elements of the tabernacle. Uh, And I I hope last week, I know it was a lot of text to read, but I hope last week that being able to see the tabernacle corporately from beginning to end come together, uh, that that uh, helped you to to, to get a deeper understanding of what's What's really there, and also the meaning and significance. You know, it, we we took the tabernacle on at the beginning by looking at all of the trees and the bark on the trees. And last week we had an opportunity together to look at the forest, the beauty of it, the majesty of it, the holiness of it, but also the depth of its meaning and significance as we come to something like the tabernacle as Christians. And I hope for you that looking at the tabernacle has grown your love for Jesus Christ. That it has grown your appreciation for his person and his work. Because there is so much depth to the tabernacle as we consider how it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he accomplished as the fulfillment of that tabernacle and of those priests... And as he brought us Gentiles near to God. He brought us from being far away, without hope in the world, without God in the world. He brought us near 
to God through the true tabernacle, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that, that the tabernacle has enhanced your Christology. And that's an important way to think about it, that we're not looking at something merely historical, merely religious, isolated to the old covenant, but we are looking at something that, that gives us insight into Christ. And so I pray that it has done that for you and that maybe if, if that ship has sailed for you and uh, you, maybe even you grumbled your way through tabernacle portions, uh, that you'll go back and revisit that and let, as Adam prayed earlier, let the impact of that settle on your heart. God had given the instructions for building the tabernacle back in chapter 25, verse 10, all the way through chapter 30, verse 38. And I think I said 30, verse 8 last week, but it's 30, verse 38. So in that section, God had given Moses on Mount Sinai the instructions for how the tabernacle was to be built. And it was to be built according to the pattern shown Moses on the mountain. In other words, God was very specific with Moses. Whatever it is Moses saw as he was hearing God speak, it was specific. And God wanted Moses to do it exactly that way because of all that it was going to point to as we think about the coming of Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the new heaven and the new earth. All of that there pictured in the tabernacle structure. And so God had given Moses these very specific instructions and shown him a pattern. But the implementation of those instructions was interrupted by the golden calf incident in chapter 32. So you get tabernacle instructions, golden calf, tabernacle realized. Really, that's the, the, the last uh, quite a few chapters, 15 chapters of Exodus. Maybe you haven't put that together and realized that, but that, that's how much space is given to this topic that you enter into it in chapter 25 and you've got instructions, the golden calf incident and the aftermath, and then immediately there you have the implementation of those instructions in building the tabernacle. And I refer to the golden calf incident as an interruption, but that is only true in part. It is an interruption in the sense that when you get the instructions and Moses comes down, you expect that the next thing to happen would be the, the, the construction itself. But in God's purposes, in his sovereign will, the golden calf incident is no interruption at all, because we recognize that God was using that, and you've heard me say this a number of times, that God was using that to prepare the people for the significance of the tabernacle. The, the weight of the tabernacle, its meaning and its importance, really would not have been felt or realized in the same way had the golden calf incident not occurred. We see this in several ways. First, dwelling. Uh, we recognize that God had, because of the golden calf incident, he had told Moses that he was not going to be with his people. He was going to fulfill his promises to Abraham. He was going to send an angel, and the angel would take care of business in Canaan and make a way for the people and settle them in the land, but that God himself would not go with them. The tabernacle is the fulfillment of God's graciousness to his people in 
that incident. He does, in fact, dwell with them, despite the fact that they sinned against him in such a grievous way. The significance of the tabernacle is also felt in its holiness. The the holiness of God had always been in view for the Israelites, and they knew their sinfulness. They had grumbled. They had basically thrown uh, lobs and blasphemies against Moses. Blasphemy just means speaking against. They They had spoken against Moses. They had attacked him, and they had grumbled against the Lord. So they had seen their sin, but never had they been confronted with their sin quite like in the golden calf. There they came face to face with how grotesque their hearts were. And so the holiness of the tabernacle, the separations between the people and God, and the need to approach God carefully through those separations, through a mediator, all of that has much more significance only after the golden calf. And then finally, atonement. That's what the tabernacle is about. It is about atonement. It is about making peace between sinners and God, between unholy people and the holy God. How is this done? Through atonement, through substitution, through sacrifice, through the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. All of this atonement becomes much more necessary in the minds of the Israelites when they realize what they have done and what God has done in forgiving them. So there is only a sense in which we can say that the tabernacle is an interruption. I mean, that the golden calf is an interruption. Really, it sets the stage for the building and construction of the tabernacle itself. But finally, in chapter 36, after all of that time that we got with the golden calf and the aftermath, finally, in chapter 36, construction began. And that took us all the way up through chapter 39. So last week, we had the opportunity to take in the making of the whole tabernacle along with the priestly garments. And so chapter 36, verse 8, carrying us all the way up to chapter 39, verse 43. And that is where we ended last week. Today, now that the various parts of the tabernacle have been constructed, and we read about all the different elements last week, now we get the tabernacle erected. So the title for the sermon this morning is Setting Up the Sanctuary. So let me get you to stand for the reading of Scripture today. I think you can handle 33 verses. Although, if you can't, uh, please, uh, if, if, you, if you have... Uh, and that we, should, we should always say this. I guess it would be a little bit cumbersome. But if you're not able to stand, that's totally fine. Don't feel shamed. This is something we do corporately. So no one's going to judge you if you're not able to stand. But if you are able to stand, we do this as a practice, as a way of revering God through his word. And by the way, that is the primary way we revere God is by means of his word. We know that how people treat the Bible shows how they treat God. Uh, one of the things I've told our two girls is to, to marry men who love God, love them, and who work hard. And so as, as I sort of, as we're raising them, those are uh, some of the things that we say. And, and I, I tell them, how do you know if he loves God? And one of the 
most significant ways you'll know is how he treats God's word. He may tell you he loves God, but you'll see in how he treats God's word. So let's read Exodus chapter 40, verses 1 to 33. This is the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. By the way, you'll see the language of tent of meeting and tabernacle constantly going back and forth in this passage. The tabernacle conveys the notion that that's where God dwells and the tent of meeting conveys the idea that that is where God meets with his people. Both of those are important, and they're both captured here as we go through these verses. Verse 7, And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle, and all that is in it, and consecrate it, and all its furniture, so that it may become holy." You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as a priest, as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them. And anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it. As the Lord had commanded Moses, he took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering And the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. 
with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. You can go ahead and be seated. And we see there the last portion, verses 34 to 38, the real climax of this entire book. A climax that will ripple throughout the pages of the Bible and culminate in the new heaven and the new earth. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's blessing, His grace over our time, uh, being instructed from His Word and instructing from His Word. Father, we're grateful for this time, Lord. We praise You for Your Word. We thank You that You do not leave Your people without food. You do not leave Your people without understanding. Lord, You do not leave us without a description of what You have done, the indicative, and what You require of us, the imperative. Lord, we thank you that you give us such clear revelation of your glory and of your glorious deeds. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We thank you that we are gathered here this morning covered by his blood and indwelt by his spirit. We thank you, Father, that we know you not just as God and Lord, though we do know you as God and Lord But Lord, we praise you that we also know you as Abba, as our Father, as Daddy. Lord, we praise you that we have this intimacy with you, that we can relate to you in all of life, in all of our sufferings, in all of our trials, in all of our discouragements and failures and enjoyments, pleasures, in all of our tears and laughter and rejoicing, we relate to you as Abba. From the moment of our conversion to the moment of our death and beyond, you are our Father. We praise you for that, Lord, and we thank you that you deliver to us this morning your word as a father to his children. And Lord, we pray that we would be obedient sons and daughters as we hear the voice of our Father. We pray, God, that you would grant us the grace to do what you command of us. Lord, that our wills would be bent towards you in all things, in the little and the big. Lord, that our affections would be set on you and uh, that they would trump all the love that we have for earthly things. All of the ways that earthly things entice us and please us. God, we pray that love for you would just eclipse all of that. Lord, we praise you for time together today, and we ask that it would be edifying, mutually edifying and fruitful, and that you would do your work among us as you promised to do. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So this passage can be divided into two easily discernible parts, and uh, when you're preaching, that's always uh, something to be really happy about is when the structure is uh, very simple to grasp. Uh, sometimes that is a little more challenging. And here it is very clear. So we get two points this morning uh, just following the basic structure of the passage. So first we get the directing, verses 1 to 15. 
and then the doing, verses 16 to 33, very clearly divided into two sections. So first, we get the directing, and that takes us up through verse 15. So I'm going to read that again. Let's put that clearly in view, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest." You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father and that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. So you get this constant language of you shall, you shall, you shall. This is the directing here. The Lord directs Moses to set up the tabernacle that has been constructed. All the pieces are ready. Everything has been formed and made. All the objects have been made, but now the entire structure must be set up. And and maybe, you know, if you hadn't read this, read ahead for this, maybe you were already thinking that that was the case, you know, as we read through it last week, but that's not the case. You've got all of these objects, all these curtains, these poles, these frames, and so forth, that are just gathered together, uh, probably guarded. Maybe Joshua's there, you know, we've seen that before. Uh, It's being guarded, it's being well cared for and watched over, uh, but it's not together yet. It hasn't all been joined and set up. This really is a climactic moment as we get into chapter 40. Of course, that is the climactic moment at the very end, but this is a climactic moment as the tabernacle goes up. And as such, the Lord commands that it be done on the first day of the first month. And we read later in verse 17 that this marked the beginning of the second year. So the first day of the first month of the second year. And what you've just thought of, I'm sure, uh, I, I hope you've thought of, is, is in fact the case. This means that it has now been one year since the people have come out of Egypt. Now, we get a little time marker at the very beginning of chapter 19. It's been two, two plus months uh, since the Israelites have left uh, Egypt from the time that they arrive at Sinai. Two or three months, and scholars debate that, but it's been about that amount of time. We get that, that time marker in chapter 19, verse 1. Well, here we get another time marker. So everything that we've read, the Israelites have been at Sinai for nine or ten months. 
And maybe you've been wondering, you know, all along, well, where are we? Like, how long is this taking? And we're not given all the details in terms of how each section of uh, each event takes. We know that at some point the Lord sends a plague on the people for the golden calf. We're not given any details about that. And, and the aftermath of that, it's just dropped on us there. We are given little time markers, about 40 days here when Moses goes up, 40 days and nights, and then another time, 40 days and nights. But now, and we're not told how long it takes to build the tabernacle, how long it took, what we read last week, all of that construction. You can imagine the amount of care and diligence and precision that went into all of that. But here we are told that it has been one year since this massive group of slaves were brought out of Egypt, redeemed by Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. It has been a year since what we read in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. I want to read those verses to you from the Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, (coughs) This month shall be for you the beginning of months. This is the month of Aviv or Nisan. It shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So on the 10th day of the first month, they select the lamb. And then on the 14th day, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Lambs are killed at the same time on the 14th day. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And even if you weren't here when we were going through Exodus 12, that's probably an image that you're, that you're aware of, that you have in your mind, of, of the Israelites taking the blood from the Passover lamb and putting it above the door and on the sides of the door of their houses. And God passes over the people. He sees the blood. He passes over the people. He strikes the firstborn dead in every Egyptian household, but he spares his people. He passes over them. This is what we got a year ago in the timetable of what's been going on with the Israelites. And we read it there in chapter 12. So the timing here is very important. And I think setting the tabernacle up at this particular time accomplishes two things. And we're not told this explicitly, but I think it it accomplishes two things. As we think about why is it that the tabernacle is to be set up here and now? So two reasons at least, and there are probably many others, but at least two. First, it allows the tabernacle to be standing in time for the first commemoration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so notice here that it is to happen 14 days before there would be 
Passover. In the beginning, remember seven days after Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread to commemorate the coming out of Egypt and not having time for the leaven to be in the bread. So I think that's the first reason. The second reason, the second thing that it accomplishes is it begins the second new year in the same way as the first. So Israel's first new year began with the Passover. And here we see that the second begins in the same way with a fresh emphasis on sacrifice. First year and the second year begin with this fresh emphasis on sacrifice. The first year began with the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The second year will begin with a functioning sacrificial structure and system. In other words, the theme of atonement and sacrifice is being put on loudspeaker for all to hear. This is just another way that this theme is being placed in the loudest way before God's people. The message of atonement is thundering through the camp. This is also true as we think about our time together this morning. Here we are, gathered in this building, in these seats, together, sitting next to one another, on the Lord's Day, going all the way back to the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday, celebrating the Lord's Supper, the the fulfillment of the Passover, the commemoration of the true Passover lamb who was slain, commemorating the Lord's sacrificial death on our behalf, speaking Christ and him crucified to one another, declaring Christ and him crucified through the entire service. Atonement is thundering through the congregation. Just as atonement for the Israelites was thundering through the camp, here it is today, thundering through the congregation. We could say it this way, we are atonement people. That is who we are. We are atonement people because we are atoned for people. We are people whose lives have been atoned for, whose souls have been eternally ransomed and purchased. We are people for whom God has placed a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of our sins. As we think about liberal theology, it should not surprise us that the two things that go so quickly are the authority of Scripture and the penal substitutionary death of Christ. The Scriptures get twisted and turned into something other than God's authoritative word to His people. And the work of the cross gets twisted To become something other than this atonement. We are atonement people. Those who claim the name of Christian who are not atonement people are not Christians. We are people whose lives have been atoned for. And atonement as a great theme thunders. It ripples through every aspect of our lives. Every fiber of our being. And every gathering of God's people. How amazing is it to think that this very moment, this very day, 
All over the world, there are atonement people gathered together, praising God for the atonement which he has made for them through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not alone. All over the globe, God's people gathered, his atonement people, his atoned for people, celebrating these glorious truths. In the Passover and the tabernacle, Israel had the picture. They had the type. Whether you're looking at Exodus 12 or Exodus 40, the Passover lamb and the blood on the door, or the building up, setting up of the tabernacle, all of that was a picture. It was a type. As we sit here this morning, how much we take this for granted. We have the fulfillment of all of those pictures. We see this in Hebrews, especially Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. We don't need repeated sacrifices. There is one. We don't, know, we don't need the repeated application of the blood. Christ did that on Calvary when he said it is finished. One time for all. Verse 14 of Hebrews 10, for a single offering he has perfected, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has set us apart. He is making us more like himself day by day. And he has ensured our glorification and future perfection before the face of the Father. Chapter 9, verse 12 of Hebrews, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Those uh, animals had to be sacrificed over and over and over again. We read about morning sacrifice and evening sacrifice. We've talked about the day of atonement. We've talked about all the sacrifices needed to consecrate the priest and all other sorts of sacrifices that you get mentioned in Leviticus. All of these subsumed under this one eternal sacrifice for God's people, securing for us an eternal redemption. So imagine how happy the Israelites were when the tabernacle went up. And then think about all the ways that we come to corporate worship. Just cast down, bummed out, dissatisfied, discontent, bored with life, feeling down in the dumps. What is this? We are here this morning celebrating the glorious fulfillment of what for these people was absolutely breathtaking and mind-altering. This should fill us with just immense joy. Whatever the worries, whatever the cares, whatever the dissatisfaction, this is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So as you see the tabernacle going up today, let joy in Christ go up in our hearts. So here, at this particular time, the Lord directs Moses to set up the tabernacle. It's at this time, on the first day of the first month of the second year. And as we read here in verses 3 to 8, this involves the Ark of the Testimony, or the Ark of the Covenant. 
the veil that hides it, the table with its arrangements, the lampstand with its lamps, the golden altar for incense, the screen for the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering outside the tabernacle tent, as well as the basin filled with water that is placed between the altar and the tent, and finally the court with the screen for the gate. All of this is to be set up by Moses or at least overseen by Moses. Now, you imagine Moses sort of vigorously uh, getting up on top of things and and stretching out uh, the curtains. Now, I imagine Moses playing a pivotal role here. Uh, Much like uh, Bezalel, as we think about him, the text describes that he's the one who's doing these things. And of course, we know that he is the one who constructs the ark, and he is playing a very key role in all of it. But but he's using those under him. The the craftsmen are doing it. So I imagine the same is true here of Moses. But I wouldn't want to say that uh, in order to see Moses just sort of standing back with his arms crossed watching it be done. I imagine Moses, Moses rolling up his sleeves and just getting down in the dirt as he joyfully puts this thing up. Let me get you guys to put the slide up of the entire tabernacle structure. So this is what the Lord, this is a, a, a recreation, so we don't know precisely exactly what it would have looked like in the finished product, but following these instructions... This is, uh, this is a, a good attempt to, to picture it. And this is what the Lord tells Moses he needs to put up. So imagine all of the pieces there being set aside, not put up yet. And then Moses' job is to place everything, to set everything up, to put everything in order. And what we, what we essentially have is the covered tent with two rooms. And you see that there. The covered tent with two rooms. The most holy place and the holy place. The most holy place containing the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. And then the holy place containing the table for the bread of the presence. The menorah or the golden lampstand and the golden incense altar. Each of which is screened. So you have the screens or the veils, these curtains, these elaborate curtains that protect that section from view and that say to anyone who comes up to it, stop, stop. But with an invitation, but according to God's dictates. Stop, but you may approach in this way. How incredible it is to think that we have been given 100% full, unadulterated access to God's throne of grace anytime, anywhere through Christ. No stop signs, no stop veils, no stop screens or gates, none of that. It's all come, it's all come from our heavenly Father. So we see here the the tabernacle tent structure with the two rooms. Each of them is screened. And then we see the closed off courtyard with two objects and a screen gate. So you see the wash basin there. And then the altar. And that is screened. And that's it. That's it. And as I said at the very beginning, as we started to look at the tabernacle, this is both humble and glorious. It, It is like Christ. It is both lowly and majestic. And in that sense, what a, what a wonderful picture of the coming of the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, both lowly 
and majestic. In verses 9 to 15, the Lord then directs Moses to anoint with oil and to consecrate what he will set up as well as the priests. So the anointing and the consecration. Aaron and his sons are to be consecrated. The tabernacle tent with its furniture as well as the bronze altar with its utensils and the wash basin with its stand. All of these are to be set apart as holy. And the altar being referred to as most holy. Maybe you notice that if you're a really keen observer. Maybe you notice that when we were reading through the text that uh, the, the bronze altar is to be most holy, is to be anointed as most holy in verse 10. And this is probably due to the fact that it is positioned outside. In other words, its placement is not to detract from its holy function. And because this is where the sacrifices happen. So no Israelite is to say, oh, look, it's just the altar. It's only made of bronze. Not so holy. Its holiness is emphasized, it seems, because one might think that this is a devalued object, but it is none of that. This is where the sacrifices occur. It is bronze because it is moving out from the throne room of God, but it is nonetheless central to Israel's worship. Aaron and his sons are then mentioned. They will be a perpetual priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. And this is to begin when Moses washes dresses, anoints, and consecrates them before the tent of meeting. And the emphasis on Aaron here points to the significance of the high priestly office. His sons are there uh, mentioned and described in terms of their being washed and anointed and the clothes being placed on them. But as we saw before, the focus really is on this high priestly office. This individual will be Israel's mediator. Long after Moses is gone, the mediator, the representative, the sacrificer, the one who comes on behalf of the people. He's, he's littered with the people, stones on his shoulders with the names of the tribes, uh, stones on his chest with the names of the tribes. I just love that imagery. He's bearing the people and he goes to God as their Representative, What a significant office. Only the high priest has this specific role. And once again, for us, we recognize that this was the picture. This was the type. But today, as we gather on the Lord's Day, not just another Sunday, as we gather today, we celebrate the fulfillment. So let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 it says this since we since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of god so here here's the practical application according to the apostles the practical application of Jesus as high priest what should that do to us what should, how should that move us how should that stir us this is what he says let us Hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that, can be, that cannot be said of any other high priest, of any high priest in the Aaronic priesthood. He goes on to say this, Let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know what we all need this morning? Mercy. We need mercy. We need grace to help in time of need. Well, well, guess what? That's every time. That's all the time. If you don't feel that you are in need this morning, you are deluded, deceived. We are always in need. We are always in need of grace, of help, of mercy. And what the tabernacle with this high priestly office, the the little guy there in the middle to the left of the wash basin. What we are reminded of this morning is that we have a high priest through whom we can come anytime with all of our cares, with all of our burdens, with all of our failures, with our sins, and we confess those and we find grace to help in time of need. So as the tabernacle goes up, as the priestly garments go on, I pray that we will lean into that wonderful access and that wonderful grace that we have and the boldness with which we come as we hold firmly to our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe this morning your your faith is like a sheet of paper on a windy day. It's just going all over the place. Maybe even like a feather. And you just feel unstable in your life. You feel unstable in your walk with God. Go back here. Lean into the high priestly office of Christ. Believe these words. Appropriate these words for the good of your soul. So first we have the directing. And secondly, this morning we come to the doing in verses 16 to 33. So look with me there. Verses 16 to 33. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony And put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. So uh, the ark had been built, but it had not been put together entirely. The the ark, the the mercy seat with the two cherubim on each side had not been placed on top of the ark. The rings were on the ark, but the poles had not been put through the ark. And here you see Moses is doing all of that. Verse 21, he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord. As the Lord had commanded Moses, and he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil. And burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. 
and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Throughout Exodus, we have seen Yahweh directing his people. This has been a big theme all throughout the book. He is the Redeemer. And the Lord of Israel. We, we use the language rightly that we accept Christ. We trust Christ as our Lord and Savior. Well, that all goes back to Exodus. As you see the way in which God is portrayed as the Redeemer and the Lord of Israel. And as Lord, he directs, he commands, and leads, and governs his people. He is Lord. At Sinai, he entered into covenant with them as a nation. The covenant Lord joined himself with his covenant people. And we read this back in chapter 24 that the people declared their submission to Yahweh as Lord. Remember that the Lord had given them audibly, they actually heard the voice of God, a just incredible thought from the top of the mountain. Now it terrified them to death, but they heard the voice of the Lord from the top of the mountain, giving the 10 commandments. And then God had given the remaining laws, the book of the covenant, the sort of explication of the 10 commandments, the application of the 10 commandments in the sample laws, the book of the covenant. God had given that to Moses. And once Moses had come back to the people and delivered all of this to them. We read this in chapter 24, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Except for that golden calf we're going to build here shortly. But that is what they said. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Obedient. As I just mentioned, we know that the covenant was broken with the golden calf. The Lord gives the stipulations, the terms of the covenant. The covenant people agree to the terms. They say we will obey. But then the covenant is essentially broken with the golden calf. And this was symbolized by the breaking of the tablets with the Ten Commandments. Moses is not just throwing a fit when he comes down the mountain. He is, he is doing something that is symbolic for what has occurred. But as we read, as chapters 32 to 34 developed, as we read, the covenant Lord of Israel is gracious. He was gracious to his people and he forgave their sins through the mediation of Moses. And he re-entered into covenant with them. He renewed his relationship with them in chapter 34. We came to that not too long ago. After the renewal of the covenant, we see a renewed emphasis on God commanding and his people obeying. This is a massive theme. It's been a theme all throughout Exodus. But once the covenant is renewed, we see it resurfacing and fronted. God commanding and his people obeying. Have you noticed that? As God directed, the people contributed. 
the workers came forward and the tabernacle was constructed. That's what we have been reading about for the last several weeks. And so we ended last week with chapter 39, verses 42 to 43. And you can look with me there in your Bible. This is where we ended at the end of last week. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Well, that's exactly what we see here with Moses as the tabernacle is erected. In verses 16 to 33, God commands, Moses obeys. God's directing and Moses' doing. And we can see the obedience of Moses here highlighted at the beginning, the end, and everywhere in between. So I want you to just see this real quick because this is the massive theme in this section. So look at it at the very beginning, the first sentence. This is the header, verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. And then we get it at the very end in the last part of verse 33. So Moses finished the work. And then as we look at the verses in between, we see another repetition. Just as we saw with the people in chapter 39. As before, I want you to see this for yourself. So look at these verses. Beginning in verse 19, I want to go through and I want you to see it. Because I want it to be engraved on our minds. So look at the end of verse 19. As the Lord had commanded Moses. End of verse 21. As the Lord had commanded Moses. End of verse 23. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 25. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 27. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 29. As the Lord had commanded Moses. And then finally, verse 32, right before the end. As the Lord commanded Moses. Moses. So you can see this theme of obeying the Lord's voice is at the very beginning. It's the header. It's the conclusion. And then it runs all the way through the passage from beginning to end. So I hope this morning that you see the importance of doing what the Lord says. It is because we don't do what the Lord says that we need a Savior. Sin is lawlessness, we read in 1 John. Sin Sin is transgression. It is to go across God's boundaries. It is to trespass. Sin is to disobey God, period. And it is because we do not do what God says that we need a Savior. And now that we have life in the Savior, it ought to be characterized by doing what the Lord says by the power of His Spirit. This is the reason why we think of conversion as transformation. We don't get rid of all sin. We still sin. But there's a transformation that occurs. A disobedient heart becomes an obedient heart. Therefore, a disobedient life becomes an obedient life. An obedient heart with an obedient life. The life shows the heart, just as Jesus said. What comes out of the mouth shows what is in 
the heart. So we recognize that we've been called to a life of doing what God says. And when we don't, we confess our sins and we return to the Lord. So let me just extend that invitation to you now this morning. Maybe you are very much not doing what God says. You know it. and You know it. Confess that to the Lord this morning and turn. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Go and sin no more. Those are the words of Jesus. Jesus embraces sinners, but we must never forget what he says to them. Go and sin no more. As Moses carries out the Lord's directives with the tabernacle, we need to notice a few things in particular. And this is where we're going to finish up this morning. First, Moses' implementation is functional in nature. He lays out the bread. He burns incense, and he makes offerings. This is not merely the tabernacle being set up. This is the tabernacle ready for use. And we see that there with these elements. A second observation we need to make is we should notice the amount of space given to the ark. You see this in verses 20 to 21, and I won't read those again, but there's a lot of space given to the putting together of the ark elements and the movement of that into the most holy place and the putting up of the veil to shield the ark. Why is that? Well, inside the ark is the tablets of stone. The ark is a symbol for everything. With its mercy seat, with the tablets inside of it, and later we will see the manna, And Aaron's rod put in there, Aaron's staff put in there. The ark is a symbol of covenant, presence, lordship, mercy, and atonement. It functions as the place of atonement, the throne of God, the holder of the covenant documents, the place where God will show up and be merciful to his people. It communicates all of these things, covenant, presence, lordship, mercy, and atonement. So much space is given to it because it is the central element. In fact, we would say the entire tabernacle structure is built around it. It is the core. Third, we do find reference to Aaron and his sons in verses 30 to 32 with the washing. But we don't get the anointing and consecration of the priests or the anointing and consecration of the tent and its furniture. So where is this? You might, you might read through this and go, okay, I see all the obedience language, but God told Moses that he needed to anoint the tabernacle and the furniture and consecrate and anoint the priests. We don't read that. What's happening here? This seems partial. Well, we find this in Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. So as you come to Leviticus 8, you will see that Moses precisely carries out the instructions that the Lord had given him. And as we lean forward into Leviticus 8, it helps us to remember that although we are soon to finish this book, we are soon to finish Exodus, the story continues. There's a sense in which we're not finishing anything next week. Uh, because when you read Exodus, it bleeds right into Leviticus. I mean, just, you just read the first few verses of, of Leviticus. We're, it's still rolling. A separate book, 
But we're just still rolling right on in to the same story. The story continues into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, into the history of Israel, the coming of the Christ, and the birth of the church, all the way down to February the 25th, 2024, here in this room, as we gather as little tabernacles of the Lord, as little tabernacles of Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. And so we read in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, what it is to be a tabernacle of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is your tabernacleness. It is the playing out of the fulfillment. He goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is the tabernacle lived out day by day through our lives today in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the tabernacle and and what it meant to Israel, what it accomplished for Israel in that day, in that season, in that period of redemptive history, the way that you used the tabernacle to relate to your people, Lord. All of it, though, pointing forward to Christ. And you, as Romans so clearly describes in chapter 3, verse 25, that You passed over sins previously committed. You passed over those former sins as you looked into the future to see your son as the propitiation for the sins of your people. For the sins of Adam and Eve and Abel. For the sins of Noah and Abraham. Moses. And those who bowed down to the golden calf. And all your people in the time of the judges, David, and all the people on the other end of the preaching of the prophets and the prophets themselves, and all those since the coming of Christ and at the time of Christ who have come to belong to you. Lord, what an incredible story you give us, and we thank you that you have made us a part of your story. We pray, God, that we would leave here today Uh, seeing ourselves as, as these holy tabernacles. And though sinful, we have been atoned for. And though sinful, we have been called to confess our sins, to not let the sun go down on our anger, to not give space for the devil, to abstain from our fleshly passions which wage war against our souls to present our members as instruments for righteousness to live as instruments for you father we pray that we would be this by your spirit by your help as we come to the throne of grace we pray all this in christ's name amen